tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Lawmakers are set to adjourn this Thursday, but there's still uncertainty hanging over the Hawaii Tourism Authority. Tourism is our economic engine, but who's going to be in the driver's seat? HPR reporter Casey Harlow joins us today. Hi. Good morning. Yes, uh, the Hawaii Tourism Authority. I'm kind of liking it to their... They're kind of in a purgatory. Um, House Bill 1375 was a measure that would have uh, repealed the authority to create a new destination management agency within the State Department of Business, Economic Development, and Tourism. And that would have gone into effect on July 1st. Last Friday, there was a conference committee with both the House and Senate tourism chairs. And after a lot of uh, hours kind of negotiating back and forth, they couldn't come to an agreement. So that measure is deferred. That comes in light of the HTA not getting a large, uh, actually getting any funding from the state budget. Uh, That was determined uh, also last week, I believe, under House Bill 300. The only allocations that the HTA got was $64 million, $63, $64 million to repair the Hawaii Convention Center's uh, leaking roof, which has gotten pretty bad in recent years. And... uh, as well as kind of rearranging some of those uh, contracts to keep staff on board. But uh, the authority requested $75 million uh, this session. They haven't gotten that. That's for their destination management action plans uh, that are set up across the state. It's for uh, their marketing contracts, which are pretty big, uh, that that they just awarded for the Japan market uh, fairly recently. And Last year, they were working with about $60 million. Uh, that's roughly $40 million less than what they were asking for. And that deferral kind of like leaves them in hanging. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of like they're in the driver's seat, but there's no gas. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So everybody has enough to kind of sit where they are, but not do anything, really. Uh, Senate Tourism Chair Lynn DeCoit says she believes the agency could use roughly $30 million in unused ARPA funds and kind of doing the math here, right? Uh, last year they had 60, and if they get that 30, then that's roughly half. So how effective will they be in that? And in a statement released over over the weekend, HTA President and CEO John DeFries uh, said, uh, we appreciate the legislature's appropriation to repair the convention center roof, and with adjur- adjustments to current contracts, they'll have funds to keep the lights on and retain staff for of 22 But ultimately, they'll have to be making tough decisions in the coming days about canceling active procurements, existing contracts, ongoing community work. And so HTA actually does a lot with community partnerships for those DMAPs, uh, and we'll see what happens. Um, Last month, uh, actually a few weeks ago, HTA held that press conference at the convention center, you know, and you may have seen it where they were saying – unintended consequences with the passage of these measures, right? And they were hoping that both these HB 1375 and Senate Bill 1522, which essentially did the same thing, um, they wished that they would die uh, within the conference committee or they would be changed so that there was money allocation, maybe a deferral of creating um, that new destination management agency uh, for further down the line, maybe phase it in. And maybe do get out uh, within the HB 300 for the state budget to get that $75 million. That was the ideal situation. Uh, but Daniel Nahu'opi'i, he's the chief administrative officer at HTA, uh, kind of characterizing the community aspect of what HTA does. We do community programs because as we want better quality visitors, they're only going to come 
if we have experiences for them to do. So we work with our communities to build up, to develop new experiences that they're willing to tell their story, that they're willing to accept the visitors. But we can't do that if the funding is mixed up and we're not exactly sure. So, you know, we're talking about this, well, how are we going to communicate to our community partners that we have the funding, we have the people there that are going to support you as we start to develop and build your capacity? If we can't even guarantee that we have the capacity to be there to support them. And there's also a lot of concern uh, when I last spoke with everybody um, about the uh, potential of those contracts, those marketing contracts as well. You know, those are very big. Uh, and the Hawaii tourism brand, the uh, Go Visit Hawaii uh, kind of brand is pretty strong else, uh, across the globe as well. And there's also risks of that. Uh, DeFree's statement also suggests that they have to rearrange contracts such as Japan and Canada. And, you know, most importantly, that lucrative U.S. marketing contract. In March, we uh, saw about 892,000 visitors from the U.S. And with the fears of a global recession or a recession here, especially with the seizure of First Republic Bank, that could have an impact on how uh, we market ourselves to the international market. There is talk of a global recession. We've seen structural changes. Federal recovery monies in the United States has started to dwindle, so people don't have that extra disposable income to travel. We've seen changes on the U.S. side. We've seen cutbacks in flights, redeployment, support. But at the same time, the international markets are starting to open up, and we actually should have more money because we have to start to build up those international markets yeah, so we'll have to see what they ultimately decide to do. Lots at stake here. Exactly. There's a few uh, few more days left in session. All we'll right. see what happens. We know you'll be tracking it. Thanks yeah. so much, Casey. Thanks. We've been talking to HBR's Casey Harlow. Uh, uh, you can read his stories online at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older with virtual courses designed to engage the mind and enrich lives. Classes begin May 22nd. More by searching Osher Hawaii. Today on The Daily, for Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, the looming crisis over the U.S. debt ceiling may soon require him to make a painful choice, prevent a financial catastrophe, or keep his job. We explain. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, providing a variety of hands-on art experiences for children and adults. Learn more about classes, workshops, cakey art camps, and drop-in art making at honolulumuseum.org. Our reality check today is with Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Christina Jedra. She has a deep dive into secret court files. Hi, Christina. I'm here. So uh, share with our listeners, you know, these are stories uh, about filings that have been sealed. That's right. So, Catherine, if I were to file a lawsuit against you today, uh, that case would be public and anyone could go to the courthouse and, you know, see what my complaint was about. 
uh, with these confidential cases, people can't do that. They can't see the complaint. They can't see the names of the people involved or the judge or the attorneys. They can't even see that the case exists. And there's hundreds of these cases that have been filed um, between 20, uh, or 2005 rather and 2022. Um, and we're just starting to kind of peel back the layers of what those cases are. Um, the Civil Beat Law Center for the Public Interest, a separate nonprofit from our newsroom, has been trying to unseal these one by one, kind of randomly. Um, and what they've uncovered so far is raising questions about why these cases were marked confidential in the first place. And you start out your story with one particular case, uh, a civil suit against the uh, uh, Church, Jesus, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. That's right. There was a plaintiff who said that when she was 15, she was sexually assaulted and emotionally abused by her guardian, who she described as a high-ranking official in the church. And so that case was filed under seal. It was a Jane Doe case. Um, so the plaintiff was anonymous anyway, but the case itself was made invisible. Um, and then it was settled, and that was that for, for many years um, until the law center got the case unsealed. And, um, you know, according to First Amendment lawyers that I spoke with, it, it fits the bill of this category of cases that um, doesn't really meet the requirements for blanket sealing like that. Um, you know, courts have reaffirmed again and again that making a case um, completely invisible to the public, it, that's really the most extreme thing you can do in terms of court access, and it needs to be justified. So it has to be, you know, so sensitive that there's no alternative um, that would be acceptable. Um, and so the experts I spoke with said that that really didn't meet that threshold. And some of these involve divorce cases. That's right. We found um, one case of a Hilo Circuit Court judge whose uh, divorce record was sealed in its entirety. Um, so almost like it didn't happen. Um, and so subsequently, the Law Center filed a motion to unseal that, and it's been unsealed in part. Um, so portions that relate to child custody remain private, um, which I, I think, you know, is sort of the compromise under the law, um, but the existence of the case can be now be seen. And then you also uh, talked about how some of these cases date back to the, the 70s with uh, uh, labor leader Art Rutledge. That was one from way back when. Yeah, you know, some of these cases have gotten sealed over the years, and, you know, the attorneys in the case uh, don't even remember why. Um, you know, there was a case involving this high power union leader that was written about in the newspaper at the time. Somewhere along the way it got sealed, the law center got involved, and none of the attorneys could remember why it was even sealed. Um, so they opened that one back up. There was another one, a climate change lawsuit filed by some uh, local youth. Um, again, that one was written about. Uh, you know, you could find it online, but for whatever reason was sealed. Uh, judge has since opened that one back up. So, yeah, and that's a recent one. The question, what else is, is there that's hiding? Yeah, because, I mean, that's a recent one, so it kind of runs right. the gamut. And, yeah, no real clear-cut lines uh, as to, you know, uh, w what to follow. Exactly, yeah. And the, the First Amendment attorneys I spoke with said, you know, there's, there are some guidelines for best practices with dealing with this stuff. Um, you know, if a case is you know, potentially should be sealed. A judge should really consider the arguments for and against and see, again, if there's some kind of compromise to be made, you know, redact some documents 
seal particular documents within the file, but otherwise leave it open. And then to also hear arguments in favor of transparency to, to invite in some entity like the Law Center to, to make the case for openness. Uh, because otherwise, if everyone in the room is saying, you know, we'd like to keep this confidential, it's kind of easy for the judge to just say, you know, okay, okay. but then it's hidden for years. Right. Well, I'm going to have to cut you off here because we've got a, a, a deal with an EAS test. But thanks so much, Christina. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Christina Jedra with today's Reality Check. Uh, and we're going to take a pause from regular programming for a test of the emergency alert system. Jim Little's love affair with Plumeria has lasted more than 50 years. It began after an overgrown tree supplied him with a yard full of cuttings. But his friend Japani fascination took off after learning how to hybridize from Bill Moraney, who is regarded as the pioneer of the cross-pollinating technique. Jim Little will welcome visitors to the family's Haliba Plumeria farm for the first time today on this lay day. His work with this lay flower has garnered global recognition. He has created thousands of new varieties, each with unique scents, colors, and shapes, which collectors will pay top dollar for. Little has passed down his Plumeria passion to his son Clark and grandson Dane. The conversations Lillian Song visited the farm to talk with the three generations, starting with Jim. Well, it started when uh, the tree was banging against the house, and I had to cut it down because it was keeping everybody awake at night. So I cut it down, and then I had all these branches, and I didn't know what to do with them. And I asked the landscape supervisor what to do, and he says, just stick them in a can and grow them. So I sampled that out, put about 40 in a can, and these were big soup cans. And in about three months, they started to flower, and I didn't know what to do with them, so I took them down to a garden center down by the ward warehouse, and I asked the garden center manager if he'd be interested in selling them. And he said, no, I have no interest in selling plumerias. People in Hawaii just break them off and stick them in the ground and they grow. Well, I said, would you be interested maybe in taking them on consignment? And he said, okay. He was reluctant, but he said, I'll, I'll try. Well, he took them and 10 days later, he calls him back and said, oh, we sold all the plumerias. You got any more? And then I said, this is the beginning of something that has a lot of interest for me. From there on in, I started to collect plumerias, and I met with growers who taught me some of the skills, and then I joined all the nursery associations in Hawaii to mix with people that were professional, and I learned a great deal from them. And then after I found out how easy it was to grow plumerias, then I started to collect everything I could, until eventually I met the late Bill Moraney, who showed me how to hybridize. Once I learned how to hybridize, we started to make new babies and new colors. And that would have been 1973 when that first Singapore... That was my first experience, was 1973, yes. So, Clark, read that you were actually also very involved with your dad in this experience, right? So when did the nurseries actually start? Um... 
1973, I was five. <laughs> so back then I wasn't doing much, but I had an interest in plants. My dad taught me from a young age. He built a nursery and he started developing plumeria farms and he taught me everything I needed or wanted to know about growing all plants. I've been doing it, gosh, for probably 25 years at least, maybe even 30 years. It's just nice that he taught me so much because he has a wealth of information and I've been able to gather that and then share it actually with my son. And that's kind of cool that we can drop it to three generations. And we all love growing plumerias. We all love plants. And we're super excited to be developing all kinds of new flowers and creations and finally opening up our plumeria farm to the public, celebrating my dad's 50th years of plumeria growing. And it's a special thing. We're very, very excited, very optimistic. And there's just so much fun things that... We love to do, and it's nice to be able to share our knowledge with other people. You also had experience outside of family business, because weren't you with the city and county? Yes, I actually worked for Wahiwa Botanical Garden. I was a supervisor up there for 17 years. It was a fun job. I loved it. I enjoyed it until my photography took off, which just threw a curveball in my whole life in, in a good way. I had to make a decision to leave the botanical garden and be a photographer, which I ended up doing and made the right choice. And that's been successful and blossoming for me. But I never gave up the green thumb. I've always visited the farm. I've always worked with my dad. And I still love working with the plumeras. Okay. And for you, Dane, you were born into this. Yeah. I've been up at this farm ever since I was a little kid. And it's just, it's beautiful up here. I love looking at the flowers. I didn't go to school for this, but coming back from college, I started a job at UPS, and it was just the first job. It was during COVID, and it was a good experience, but then I started getting into plumerias with my grandpa and father. I've come to love it more and more as the years go by, and I'm super grateful that they allowed me to have this opportunity to work on a farm like this, a beautiful farm. Yeah. It's like on the job. I mean, you were it's, born into yeah, this. Yeah, born into this. It's, it's amazing. You don't have to pay for this education. <laughs> no, I get, I get it from my grandpa and my dad. It's, it's awesome. Yeah, they teach me a lot. I also saw some seedlings on the way in. Yeah, I plant the seed in a two-inch pot, and then as it gets maybe about four inches, I'll transplant into a six-inch pot in our nursery over there. And by the time they get about like a foot to 18 inches, we will put them in the ground and then wait maybe two to three years and we'll see some new blooms and hopefully some new keepers, some new flowers, yeah. So it really is the long game. You guys have to be very patient, you're very nurturing, and until that first bloom comes out, you don't really know what that flower will be. Exactly. Yes, and we have thousands in the ground right now that will be brand new. You know, whether they're gorgeous, which we're hoping, or they're not as beautiful, we just haven't seen them. Yeah, and the excitement of not knowing is part of it. But you want to go out there and look, is there a flower head? I mean, the excitement of there's new leaves coming out. I mean, the little things actually kind of get us really excited. And it's simple, but it is long. I mean, it does take sometimes three to five years from when you plant the seed 
for it to show its flower. Yeah, it's a waiting game, but boy, it's worth it when you get a knockout like Metallica and Hawaiian Fire and Dane. You know, these are all JL varieties. We have so many that my dad has developed along this journey, and now Dane is planting thousands. My dad says, that's enough, boy. He keeps saying it. And Dane's like, no, I mean, let's keep, let's keep the little farms going. And that's, that's what we're trying. Got to stay ahead. And yeah, I mean, you don't, you never know when you get a new purple or a, I mean, for all we know, we could get a, a blue flower one day. I mean, that maybe not, but like, that's just something that's an exciting thing to think about and wait on, you know, the yeah, unknown. Yeah. It's, it's, you never know. Not all seedlings are keepers. Some of them are rejects. And we try and be very selective on what we keep and not let the inferior crosses enter into the market. Only the best. You just mentioned blue plumeria. Is that, does that exist? Not yet, not yet. We have a purpley silver one, which is Metallica, which was one of the first very unique ones that was created by my grandpa and just to have something maybe not blue but i mean something different you know just would be very cool and going back on that sometimes when you see a flower and it it looks plain you might have to wait another year for the flower to mature because flowers change like in the beginning they might not be fully mature and they might look plain and then the next year it'll change and you're like oh that's a keeper you know so it's it's like you said the waiting game you don't want to jump the gun yeah, yeah, and pull you something you because you're not sure. It might have a little look. Oh, this one might have a little tint of silver or blue or whatever. So we, it's hard. It's yeah. so hard when you have thousands of trees that you got to go through and cull the ones that aren't going to make it and, and, and pick the, the, the beauties to name, you know, for the future. So it's interesting but that's just part of farming it's part of farming you grow you have to cull and you have to replant dane i've seen some of the names that these these plumeria have your name amongst them how do these names come about uh we all come together before they come out and we name them i'm lucky enough my grandpa was able to name one after me and my entire family so they're all gorgeous flowers so i'm i'm stoked I was very particular in picking the best for my family. <laughs> Wonderful legacy. Yeah, thank you. And on the website, uh, Clark, I see you talking to one named Chemo. What is Chemo? <laughs> Chemo is kind of one of the original uh, plumeria. It's got a, a peach color and a nice fragrance. But yeah, it's one of the OGs. Um, my dad might have more information on it. Chemo is developed by Ted Chin, and Ted Chin was a student under Dr. Criley. And Dr. Criley has been so instrumental in sharing his knowledge and his long-time experience with Pumerias. And I must admit that a lot that I have achieved today has come from Dr. Criley's guidance. Dane, what color is your flower? It's a yellow flower with red pointed tips. So it's kind of unique in that the plumeria has pointed tips. Pointed tips? Mm -hmm. It's a rounded tip. Mm -hmm. Pointed, wow. yeah. You're 23, 23, so this came out when you were what? Oh, man. I don't even know. I, I was young. You guys got to answer that one. I'm thinking at least 15 years ago, I am yeah. thinking. Yeah, probably. That's a good guess, eight. yeah. 
And so this is the process you go through. You're planting seedlings. You're waiting that three to five years to for a bloom to happen. Pointy tips. Wow. Yeah. Very unique. Okay. Yeah. And how's the scent on that one? Because that's another aspect of your flowers. It's It smells like a good plumeria. I'd say it, it's a sweet fragrance. Sweet, sweet looking and sweet fragrance. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, Clark, for you, since you've been around longer, how many uh, varieties do you have named? I'm well, there is a JL Clark wave, and it's kind of a yellowy with a nice little curly wave to it. And it has a very good fragrance, similar to the Hawaiian Leaf Flower, aka Celadine, which they use all over the airports, and you can smell that's the traditional one. So it has that really, really neat lay flower fragrance. Very thick and sturdy growth habit. It's a special one that my dad named for me, so I'm stoked. And we are in the process of still trying to figure out a new variety for my father. And we have two in mind. We don't want to jump the gun because we just want to make sure it's special, very, very special for my father. How how far down along the line do you think that will be? I mean, we're, we're getting close. We have two that we're looking at, and we're kind of leaning towards this one that we actually even planted in, in an area that could be anywhere from this year and Garen's probably by next year. Okay, just thinking for the tours that open up on May 1st. Do you think that might be a highlight? You know, if it's flowering, we will definitely take some people on the private tours and maybe show them the inside scoops on that one. The flowers that we choose and do name, they have to be a really excellent variety of all the categories. You know, fragrance, growth habit colors and it takes a committee i mean we have a, a group of people that sit down and pick out which flowers that we're going to release for the next year and it takes time it takes a lot of time after all these years we wouldn't be here unless we were trustworthy and i'd say that many of our customers return one of the greatest joys that i have is being able to to teach which i've been doing all my life and then I'm so thankful that we can keep it in the family and share the beauty with others that are interested. And I'm just very, very fortunate and couldn't be happier to have it be a family operation. I'm thankful every day that I have my family involved. Oh, how heartwarming. That was Plumeria farmer Jim Little, his son Clark, grandson Dane, and HPR's Lillian Song. The family is commemorating Jim Little's Golden Jubilee, showcasing his life's work with public tours of the family farm, which opened today officially and will remain open through October. We'll share links on our website later today. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. Her nickname is the Pearl Harbor Avenger, and she's birthed at Pearl Harbor. She is the USS Bofin, a World War II submarine put in service 80 years ago today. Out of 200 submarines built in her class, only 15 remain in the world. We talked to Chuck Merkel, executive director of the Pacific Fleet Submarine Museum, about the Bofin's place in naval history, both in real life and on the big screen. 
she remains a memorial to the 52 submarines lost and the over 3,600 submariners that died during World War II. The Bowfin herself, she was launched on December 7, 1942 at Portsmouth Naval Shipyard, so she was given the nickname the Pearl Harbor Avenger. And as was customary during the war, submarines were named after fish or aquatic animals, so it's kind of interesting. The Bowfin was a, named for a, a brackish water fish native to North America, and it uh, dates back to the Jurassic period. So it could say that the, the Bowfin fish is a survivor and it's, a, it's known to be a very aggressive predator, known to creep into the shallow waters at night and conduct ambush attacks on its prey. So pretty appropriate name for a submarine. When we found ourselves in World War II, we had a pretty ideal submarine to go out and do the things that Bowfin and her sister ships did. Well, explain to our listeners exactly what the USS Bowfin is credited with doing. She was commissioned on the 1st of May, 1943, and as soon as she was ready, she left the east coast of the United States and and made the transit to Australia. And that in and of itself is a pretty amazing voyage. Probably most of the sailors on board had never made any kind of extended voyage up until that point. And then she made the first of her five war patrols out of Australia. After about a year of time, all of our submarines needed some major repairs and work to be done. So she came back to the West Coast United States and had had repairs and some modernization done. And she came out of the yards and did her final four war patrols out of Pearl Harbor and Guam. She made a total of nine war patrols, claimed to have sunk 44 enemy vessels during the course of those patrols. She also did some special, what we called special operations. And during World War II, that meant probably laying some mines, also to resupply guerrillas in the Philippines, and possibly uh, to insert or extract guerrillas if they needed to be uh, brought out or to bring in replacements. She did a number of those things. She was awarded the Presidential Unit Citation, which is the highest level of unit award given to a ship or aircraft squadron in our Navy also awarded a Navy unit commendation, and she was awarded the Philippine Presidential Unit Citation. Well, these submarines, I mean, they're they're pretty stealthy, right? I mean, they just kind of sneak up on you, and they can do some damage, and they did, which helped change the course of the war. Absolutely. I think most people today think in terms of a submarine as always being underwater, which Our modern submarines, being nuclear-powered, have that capability to do so. But uh, during World War II, although they were state-of-art, our submarines really needed to be thought of as small surface ships that could submerge for brief periods of time. And she was most effectively employed when she spent most of her time on the surface. She could maximize her, her height of eye to the horizon, so she could maximize her search distance. She could use her radars to their full capability and then only to submerge if felt threatened or to execute an attack. She's been tied up there at uh, Pearl Harbor for some time now, and and you folks were able to officially get it declared as a National Historic Landmark. She was decommissioned in 1947, got recommissioned in 1951 for the Korean War, 
And then in 1954, she was decommissioned a final time. She was out at Mare Island Naval Shipyard. She spent the 60s up in Seattle at Lake Union. She was a reserve training ship. And then in the early 70s, she was towed out here to be actually scrapped. Then through the efforts of the Navy League and, uh, of course, we had Senator Inoue and lots of people doing some push-ups, we were able to stand up the association I now run and in uh, 1979, the Bofin was donated to the association. After sitting over at the inactive ships facility here in Hawaii, she was in pretty rough shape. She was down in uh, Honolulu Harbor for about a year and a half, and then in April of 81, she was brought here to where she is today and open to the public. And in 1986, she got dry docked, and that was in preparation for the filming of the War and Remembrance. She was actually out on the Waianae Coast for filming that miniseries. We did another dry docking in 2004, and then just this last fall, we finished another makeover. Mainly, we're worried about the maintaining the watertight integrity of the hull and keeping her safe and suitable for, for a public display. And we really think we're in great shape. I think the next time we'll put her in dry dock will be in about the 2040 time frame, just prior to her 100th birthday. Wow. That's amazing. You know, and, and you have so many people that stop o- over there as part of the tour at Pearl Harbor and Arizona Memorial. What strikes you, you know, about the folks that come to visit and, and what they take away when they hear her history and the stories of the, the sailors who served on her? I think everybody comes on board. I think there's a a realization of how small the space is inside the submarine. Each sailor has very little personal space and just how cramped everything is. It really took teamwork to operate the ship, to take it to sea, to to take it on a war patrol, to execute the attacks, and then to come home safely. Every crew member had to do their job to the best of their abilities. And it really is a team effort. And, and that's true today on our, on our modern submarines. They're certainly more technology advanced. They have the nuclear propulsion capability. But without the crew members on board to bring that ship to life, it, it's really meaningless. And so what would you like listeners to remember about the Bofin as we mark the 80th anniversary? I think that she's a survivor. She survived the war. None of, she, none of her crew members were hurt. She's been serving our nation for 80 years, first as the active duty warship, then as a reserve training ship, and now for uh, 42 years, she's been a museum ship. For many people, it's the first, possibly only time they're ever on a, on a submarine. And then do you have a, I don't know, a personal story or a connection to the Bofin? Not necessarily to the, to the Bofin herself, but I, I served... Uh, in our submarine force for 30 years. Um, I was fortunate that I served on four Pearl Harbor-based submarines during my time in the Navy. It's not very often that a job like this opens up and to be given the opportunity to maintain this ship as a, as a memorial and to operate and maintain this museum. You know, we've done a $20 million makeover of our museum over the last few years. So it's been a it's a labor of love. It, there were a lot of challenges, you know, executing that sort of a renovation, but throw in the additional complications from the the COVID pandemic, and to have uh, made the improvements here and in our facilities, 
and to keep the ship safe and suitable for the public. Very proud of those accomplishments. Yeah, you know, and I think as we as we mark these, you know, anniversaries, right, with the with, at Pearl Harbor, we've got Armistice Day coming up as well um, later this summer. I mean, all just part of the the history of the Pacific. You know, there there won't be any any other submarines available to to be open to the public like the Bofin, uh, our nuclear powered submarines. We've maintained one, the Nautilus. That's in Groton, Connecticut. There won't be any other submarines available to put on public display. So we've got to maintain the ones that are currently out there in good condition and keep them uh, available to the public for as long as we possibly can. That was Chuck Merkel, Executive Director of the Pacific Fleet Submarine Museum, talking about the USS Bofin, a World War II submarine which marks its 80th anniversary of being put into service. Merkel notes the numbers of submarines are dwindling. Back in the day, there was a fleet of 41 ballistic subs. It's now down to 14. And of the 100 attack subs, there are 50 left. Merkel himself served on four submarines based at Pearl Harbor in his last active duty assignment, Submarine Forces U.S. Pacific Fleet. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from BAMP Project, presenting the Doobie Brothers in their 50th anniversary tour, 7 p.m. this Friday at the Waikiki Shell. Tickets at BAMPProject.com. May turns our attention to marking Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. Today we're focusing on California-based author and psychiatrist Elizabeth Nguyen. She grew up in Honolulu after her Vietnamese parents immigrated to Hawaii in 1975 at the end of the Vietnam War. The Punahou alum recently published a novel titled Aloha Vietnam. It's set on Oahu and depicts two generations of a Vietnamese family coming to terms with mental health treatment and recovery. The Conversations Russell Subiono had the chance to talk with Wynn about her debut book. Your novel focuses on the relationship between a mother and a daughter as their Vietnamese-American family is kind of thrown into this world of mental health treatment and recovery. It seems like addressing mental health is something that wasn't always a priority for many cultures. In fact, I get the sense that in the past, many Asian or Pacific Islander families would find it shameful if word got out that a family member was suffering from mental health issues. This is a topic that we need to be able to talk openly about in a casual way, as if we talk story about our kids and Mm -hmm. food and sports all the time. We need to talk story about mental health. And I, growing up in a traditional Asian American, Vietnamese American family, we did not talk story about mental health. <laughs> that was a taboo topic, even though we experienced it. You know, we maybe didn't have the words to talk about it, but as a psychiatrist now, I know so clearly that we had mental health in my family. And that was one of the reasons why I, I, I wanted to write this book is to break that stigma and that break that taboo so that more people can talk comfortably, more people can talk story about mental health so that we can learn and heal and grow from each other's stories. And in the book, you really take some time to really set the character's background and history. Can you talk about why you made that structural choice? Is that just your preferred style or does it have some roots in your professional method as a psychiatrist? I think it's all of the above. I'm a child psychiatrist, so I 
always view people developmentally, like from their history. How did they get to be who they are based on where they came from? Not just through their childhood, but ancestrally too. What, what was their parents' life like? What was their grandparents' life like? All of that influences who you are now. So I just always look at people through that lens. But I think from a story standpoint, I really wanted to create that context for readers to understand that mental health struggles and symptoms we might be experiencing now might not just be our own individual personal struggle or failing, but it could be a part of a linked ancestral cultural heritage that we all inherit just being mothers and daughters and brothers and sisters and fathers and sons. It's how the human race perpetuates and it's, it's we all are linked to each other. So there was both a personal and a professional sort of idea behind putting out so much context in that. I found it helpful to have the context. I'm always attracted to that kind of storytelling. I think I just have an interest in history just generally. And so whenever I read a novel, I feel like it's always helpful to get that backstory and get that context. I feel like the term for what you've been talking about, I believe, is generational trauma. I know it's a term that we're starting to hear more and more of in the mainstream, this idea that some mental health issues and, and emotional health issues are being passed down through the generations. How do we stop it or how do we stem it or, or escape from it or, or heal from it? I love the last one. How do we heal from it? Because we can't stop it. We can't run away from it. We need to heal from it. That is the way forward. And one way is just to open the understanding that this is what is happening, that a lot of mental health, downstream mental health symptoms and conditions, not all, but a lot, are related to upstream or ancestral intergenerational unprocessed trauma, loss, and grief. And I'll just sort of share sort of a personal sort of how that looks so that people can have a better understanding of like how that actually plays out because these are big terms that, you know, mental health professionals and therapists we throw around all the time. But for, you know, a family where their child, let's just say their child, their teenager is struggling with depression or anxiety and they have no understanding of how this could be ancestral or intergenerational trauma. If that child's parents or grandparents have gone through trauma in their lives and have experienced emotional trauma, physical trauma, psychological trauma that can range from anything, from abuse, from translocation, migration, just adjustment, upheaval, war, and the other generations haven't had a chance to really emotionally process that, but they still carry that experience inside of them. Trauma lives on in the body. It lives on in the psyche. Even if you don't talk about it, it lives on inside of you. And it, it, it gets passed on through how you feel, how you parent, how you show up in your relationships. And all of that does lead to, to downstream emotional difficulties for generations. How much of the story in your book is based on personal experience or professional experience or maybe stories that you heard from your parents who I read were refugees from Vietnam? Yeah, a lot of the story was based on my personal and professional experience growing up 
in a family with mental health issues and then becoming a psychiatrist, mostly because I wanted to understand how to help people navigate through these difficulties. But I ended up making the story fiction. Like I, I'm not eyeing, I did not go through a bipolar journey myself. I have family members who have, because I wanted to really allow the creative freedom for, this is where it becomes a novel. This is where the fiction part comes in to really allow the characters to move freely in the creative space of a novel. But so much of the context of a teenager developing a manic episode, getting hospitalized, being put on medications, being diagnosed, and what the family goes through in treatment comes so much from my firsthand experience as a family member and then as a clinician myself. One other thing that I was curious about is how did Hawaii shape and impact you? I know your parents arrived on Oahu in 1975 at the end of the Vietnam War. You were born and raised in Honolulu. How did that experience shape and impact? Was there something about Hawaii that maybe Mm -hmm. was able to filter into your upbringing? Absolutely. I love Hawaii. And Hawaii is a place of healing. Mm -hmm. Hawaii and its land and its waters is a place of healing. And so I really feel that landing in Hawaii for my family was a place of healing for our own family's journey, like as it is for so many people. And Hawaii is a very, very special place for me. Even though I currently live in California, Hawaii is my home. And the Pacific Ocean and the waters of Hawaii are my home. And I really conveyed that in the story where the actual place of both Vietnam, where the family, the mother and father are grieving the loss of their motherland, but also the place they landed in, Hawaii, become real characters in the book. Because I'm also an environmental ecological therapist where I really believe that the environment that you live in is another animating force in your life. It's not just a place where you you hang your your head at night. It like the, the land that you live on really becomes a character in who you are and it becomes a force in your family's story and shaping. And so Hawaii definitely is a big part of who I am and a character in this story as a healing element. I'm not one that deals in a lot of hypotheticals, but what do you think your life would have been like if your parents had ended up on the West Coast somewhere or, (laughs) you know, in another part of the U.S.? I would not have enjoyed the natural beauty of Hawaii Mm -hmm. as much as I got to experience growing up, there was definitely a closeness to the relationship with the land and the waters growing up in Hawaii gave me and everyone who grows up on this island in the middle of the Pacific has. But I think I'm raising my kids in California right now, and they were born and raised here in the West Coast. And it's it's different. It's still special and beautiful because California is its own land and culture. But it's, it's different than Hawaii. There's no shortage of trauma in this world, and everyone processes their own trauma differently. What would you say to someone struggling with their mental health, but maybe from a culture or a family that doesn't have much experience seeking help for that struggle? I would say just talk to someone. Just talk to someone. Start there. It could just be a friend or a family member, but let's... Let's really take away the shame from talking story about mental health struggles just by being vulnerable and sharing that you might be struggling with something. Because unless you speak up 
and share your story, then you you can't get help. And and help can look in so many ways. Healing happens in so many ways. And for, for many people right now, it may not be getting formal therapy, but it may be just opening up to a friend or a neighbor about, hey, I've kind of been feeling down or I've been feeling like anxious and just opening that up so that it becomes more commonplace for us to talk story about mental health. Thank you so much for your time, Elizabeth. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you. Mahalo. That was Oahu-born psychiatrist and author Elizabeth Wynn talking with HPR's Russell Subiano. Wynn's new novel, Aloha Vietnam, is available everywhere books are sold. We'll have a link to where you can download the first four chapters on the conversation page of our website later today. And that's it for us. Tomorrow, we'll hear more about new guidelines for children in medicine. Do you have a story idea to share with us? Call or talk back line 808-792-8217. You can find the Conversation podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation. 